0: Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Hello and welcome. I am your host, Michael Moograft. The world is full of unseen forces. Let me be your guide as we lift the veil and peer into the face of the unknown. This is the major's well. Your one want one guide to all things witchcraft and spiritual. Welcome, majors. This week, we're looking at sacred sites, and I've picked Karnak in Egypt to look into. Karnak was a highly sacred and secretive place. Information has been pieced together through inscriptions on temple walls, as well as surviving papyrus. Therefore, our knowledge on the magic and rituals that took place in Karnak is sketchy in some places, and some educated guesswork from Egyptologists and archaeologists has been used to patch it together. Karnak is arguably the biggest temple complex in the world and has been called the Vatican of Ancient Egypt. Located in modern-day Luxor, the ancients called this city Thebes, though the Egyptians called it Waset. Now Karnak contained 61 acres, it would comfortably hold 10 average-sized European cathedrals. And when I say temple, it wasn't a place of collective worship, it was seen as the home of the gods. In fact, the Egyptians called their temples the Mansions of the Gods. It was close to the public, and even priests had to purify themselves before they entered the space. The only interaction the public had with the temple was with the outer walls, the outer courtyards, and the gateways that led into the temple. On these walls, they would scratch images of the gods and grooves would be carved into them so as to loosen tiny pieces of rock, which would be imbued with the temple's power, so it could be used in personal rituals. To combat this, certain sections of the walls were ordered by the priests to be veiled, with either wood panels or cloth screens to shield the Holy Images from damage. There are three sections to the temple. The Montu temple enclosure, the Amon temple enclosure with the temple of Khonsu, and the Mut temple enclosure. Amon, Mut and Khonsu are known as the Theban Triad. They were very important and especially within the city. Mut is the great mother and sky goddess and wife to Amon. Their son Khonsu was the god of the moon and time but more on one two and on one later. Karnak was linked to another important sacred site called Luxor, by an avenue lined with sphinxes, but for now, we'll just focus on Karnak. The traditional name of Karnak is Ipet-Sun, which means the most select of places. This comes from the fact that Thebes, the temple where Karnak is located, was thought to be the first city built on the primordial mound that arose from the water in the Egyptian creation myth. The creator god Amun stood on this mound and began to create life as we know it. I'll speak about this more later, but essentially the site of Karnak was thought to be where life, as the Egyptians knew it, was created, and the entire complex was built to commemorate that moment. It became known as Karnak due to an Arab invasion in the 7th century. They called it Karanak, meaning Fortified Village, for its high thick walls. When Europeans came snooping around in the 17th century, They were told it was called Karnak, and the name stuck. It was also constructed in alignment with the winter solstice, and this light would penetrate the inner sanctum of Amun's temple. The solstice also coincided with the beginning of the germination season of the ancient Egyptians, a time when life was returning to the land and when farmers would once again begin working on the fields. In fact, the entire site was aligned with celestial events, which would have been interpreted by the priests to understand and to predict the will of the gods and their wishes for Egypt. During the reign of Ramesses II, which took place 1279-1213 to 1213 BCE, a list of its assets were compiled, which included 81,322 workers and enslaved peoples, 65 villagers, 433 gardens, 421,662 head of cattle, 2,395 square kilometers of fields, 46 building sites, and 83 ships. That's a lot of organization needed for a smooth operation. 200 years later, towards the end of 1075 BCE, there were over 80,000 priests alone employed in Karnak, and the high priests were often more wealthy than the pharaoh. Now, so beautiful and complex was this site that when the Assyrians invaded Thebes in 671 BCE and in 666 BCE, they raised the city to the ground but they left the temple untouched. And this was due to their sheer admiration that they had for the site. So impressed were they that they actually ordered the Egyptians to rebuild Thebes so the temple would still function. Built from many different temples, the age of this site is estimated at 3,000 years old, though it's unknown and this is debated, and over 30 pharaohs added to it, eager to leave their mark on it. There's evidence to suggest that it was under near-constant construction with very little downtime. Elizabeth Blythe, an Egyptologist, writes, The importance of Karnak resided in it being the contact point between Amon, the supreme ruler of the universe, and the pharaoh, the supreme ruler on earth who represented all Egyptian people. Thus, especially from the New Kingdom onwards, and that is a band of time. Every king who wished to be remembered forever was virtually compelled to contribute to the splendour of this most important temple. And there was rivalry between the pharaohs at the time. Hapsepshut, an incredibly talented female pharaoh, renovated the main space in Karnak and created a palace to Ma'at, the goddess of justice and order, as well as a chapel made of red quartzite. To consolidate her power, she cleverly said she was the wife of Amun. The position was usually filled by a high priestess, and she also erected many obelisks. One of them reads, quote, I know that Karnak is heaven on earth, the sacred elevation of the first occasion, the eye of the Lord to the limit, his favorite place, which bears his perfection and gathers his followers. The other obelisks state that everything that happened to her was Amun's initiative, and all of her deeds were to honour him, she also states that she had access to his thoughts and acted as an oracle to him, further consolidating her power. When her stepson Tutmost III took over the throne, he destroyed her chapel and erected his own. He also created the Akmenu, a pillar containing the lists of pharaohs who ruled over Egypt from before the pyramids, and purposefully missed Hapsep's suit from it. He went out of his way to erase her achievements, but failed, and it's coming to light how brilliant this woman's rule was. Misogyny doesn't win in the end. Under Tutmosis III, the Temple of Amun at Karnak celebrated 54 festival days, which is a decent chunk out of the year, and he ordered the construction of a sacred lake that still lies within Karnak. We're not sure if this was new, a replacement, or an extension of a previous lake. But the water would have been purified and then used in purification rituals for the priest. It's been mentioned how clean the priests of Egypt were by Herodotus. They are religious to excess, far beyond any other race of men, and use the following ceremonies. They drink out of a brazen cup, which they scour every day. There is no exception to this practice. They wear linen garments, which they are especially careful to have always fresh washed. They practice circumcision for the sake of cleanliness, considering it better to be cleanly than comely. The priests shave their whole body every other day, that no lice or other impure thing may adhere to them when they are engaged in the service of the gods. It's also thought that the lake was used for ritual navigation. Also, geese were a symbol of Amun. Each morning at dawn, Amun's priests would take the geese from enclosures within the temple and release them onto the lake. The lake also represented the primeval waters, before creation, called Nun. It was surrounded by gardens that became more ornamental the closer to the inner sanctuary they were. Over 400 gardens have been counted, and it should be noted that the Egyptians believed that gardens were similar to heaven. The number of gardens in Karnak suggests that this was an earthly replica of heaven. Some temples were deconstructed as old gods fell out of favor. An example of this was the god Montu. His temple being dismantled and used for others is thought to be down to the changing of the heavens. Montu is the falcon-headed god, but more often depicted as the bull-headed god of war and strength. Montu became replaced by Amon, the ram-headed god, which coincided with the astronomical shift from the age of Taurus, the bull represented by Montu, to the age of Ares, the ram, represented by Amun. Montu's image was outdated, and he no longer had as much relevance in the heavens. Now, Ineni was the name of one of the main architects of Karnak, and is largely responsible for how we see Karnak as it stands today. He would have worked for Amotep I, and once his reign ended, he would have continued under Thutmoseus I. At the height of its power, Ineni created a sanctuary, enclosed by walls, that shields the desert sun, colonnaded courtyards linked by processional ways. A huge reception hall called the Hippostyle Hall, the entrance of which was fronted by huge obelisks and lined with sphinxes. Hippostyle means a ceiling that's supported by a row of columns. The hall is a forest of columns and it contains 134 in total. Thought to be a symbol of a papyrus reed swamp, which Amun rose from at the beginning of time. And these columns are huge, 12 of the tallest are 70 feet tall, nearly 21 meters, and these stand in the center of the ceiling where it's higher. The other 122 are 40 feet or 12 meters tall, and it takes about six people with outstretched arms to fully encircle these columns. So it kind of gives you an idea of how big they are. It's the largest room of any religious building in the world. Thought to have been just a hall, it's looking like that's a limited view of it. It contained its own treasury, and it was highly likely that it was a temple in of itself. The columns and walls of the hall are richly decorated and covered in religious scenes. They show rituals and sacred activities taking place between the pharaoh, priests and the gods, mainly being Amun, and it shows daily sacrifices to yearly festivals. Other scenes show the gods giving a pharaoh powers to rule over the land. They crown him and give him instruments to rule and even pour water over him, alluding to some sort of baptism. There's also scenes of him offering wands of incense, there's pouring of libations of water, sometimes both at the same time. There's offerings of bread and cakes, bouquets of flowers, bowls of wine and jugs of milk. He anoints statues and elevates food offerings. There's also an offering of the symbol of Ma'at, the goddess of truth, and the pharaoh offering his royal name. Others show him embracing various gods. There's also some interesting scenes relating to Ramesses II performing rites around the foundations of a temple to Amun, depicting him stretching a cord to mark the boundaries of the building and scattering gypsum powder on the ground to create a protective boundary around and under the temple. He moulds the first brick, which I guess is similar to a modern-day cornerstone practice, and dedicates the temple to Amun. Then once it's finished, he's then seen conducting a huge sacrifice to honour the occasion. Another wall that bears mention that I found intriguing contains an interesting idea around hieroglyphs. Something that appears dangerous and is then disarmed can actually be shown in the style of hieroglyphs. And it also acts as a way of preventing the dangerous object from doing harm further down the line. It kind of permanently renders it useless. The Bubastide portal in the temple uses these hieroglyphs, naming the towns and cities captured and subdued by Egypt. Further adding to the power of this hieroglyphic style is the fact that the hieroglyphs are written within the bodies of captives. These people are being depicted as being tied up and contained. It sounds like to me that this is some sort of spell that was used over these cities to further confirm their subjugation and loyalty we've essentially got a binding spell that is further strengthened by Karnak itself. The complex and temples within Karnak were cloaked in mystery. Its rituals were performed in deep seclusion and kept secret, so these walls are of great value and they give us insight into Egyptian magic and ritual. Some of Karnak's rituals were performed throughout the night. In order to keep track of time, the temple contained a room of water clocks. This is called the Chamber of Calypsidras. Now, Kalebsidryas are stone vessels, with a tiny hole at the bottom, which allowed water to drip at a constant rate. This regulated flow is measured, and then the time could be deduced. Throughout history, a lot of pharaohs said festivals took place here, and this is a celebration of their 30th year of ruling, as they've proven their ability to rule. Upon completing rituals held within the festival, it was said that the pharaoh underwent a sort of rejuvenation, and his youth was restored. Now, Karnak is Amun's main cult site, who is Amun. He was the Egyptian creator sun god. He was the state god from around 1550 to 1100 BCE, and occupied the central temple of this site. According to Egyptian mythology, for eons he drifted asleep through a primordial sea called Nun. Eventually, he awoke and made an island rise up from the sea. This was called the first event and it was from this mound that he created all of life. He began creating the male god Shu, the air, and the goddess Tefnut, Moisture. Next, Nut, the sky goddess, Geb, the god of the land. And with each generation of gods and goddesses, all aspects of nature were created and the deities who watched over them. I said it earlier, but the Egyptians pointed to the site of Karnak as the first mound and built Karnak on it to honor it. Egyptian temples were built to mimic this mound as well. The further you move into any temple within Egypt, towards its inner sanctum, the floor level increases and the ceiling lowers and it becomes darker. This is also the case in Karnak, but what also bears mentioning is the fact that the walls that surround Karnak have an undulating design, which is thought to represent the primordial waters that lapped around the mound where Amon, the creator, made his first appearance. Throughout the temple, there seems to be a theme of shielding light. Now, Amun's name means hidden one, and within hieroglyphic script, his name appears as a blank space, rather than a hieroglyph. The public didn't have much experience with him, as he was kept away from them a lot of the time, and it seems the way the temple is built with this lack of light in mind, it also suggests that not only was he avoiding the public's eye, but also the light itself. There are some who suggest that this also hints to the early use of caves as sacred spaces within Egyptian culture. To check out more on the sacredness of caves, check out my episode called Cave Worship. The inner chamber to Amun is very small and housed its statue, which was also believed to actually be alive. Only the king or high priest could enter this chamber, making the contact with the god to be highly intimate and exclusive. Amun um, would be consulted on very important matters, such as war, the building of temples and monuments, as well as appointments to important positions. We do know something about a daily mourning ritual that took place in this room, from a papyrus called the Theban Ritual Papyrus that was discovered. The pharaoh's representative would enter this inner chamber, light incense, and would open the doors of the naos. Now, this was a small shrine, where the deity's statue was kept. So, the statue is revealed in what was called Disclosing the Face of God, then follows spells around prostration, praise, and offering. The statue would then be removed, salve would be applied, clothes would be refreshed, and jewellery adorned. Ointments are then applied, and finally eye-paint. Then fresh sand is placed on the floor, the statue is purified with natron, sodium bicarbonate, and water, and then the statue is returned to the naos. As the priest leaves, he erases his footprints, which is symbolic of erasing impurities. Now, at every stage, a spell is said. For example, before lighting a fire to burn for the incense, for taking the censer, for setting it up, for adding incense, for approaching the naos, It's a very step-by-step and thorough practice. At the end of each day, the naos, this small shrine, would effectively be sealed with a clay seal and some string. If anyone's interested in reading about this further for their own practice, I've added a link to the ritual on my Patreon. Now, a lot of the Egyptian gods had statues within Karnak that were also kept from public view as they were too sacred for profane eyes. However, these gods were public gods, unlike Amon. So, secondary statues were created that were still revered, but could be used in public rituals and festivals. Now, Amon did have a secondary statue created, And it would leave Karnak to go visit other temples throughout Egypt, and I guess this sort of idea of transferring power from the main sites to secondary sites. These sacred statues would be transported on barks, essentially a miniature boat on a platform with several long carrying poles. They would then be covered in gold and they contained inlays of lapis, turquoise and carnelian. Priests carrying the bark would have to undergo purification rituals in order to touch it. Pharaohs built stop-off shrines where the deity could rest on their journeys around the country. There was a lot of loud singing and dancing, and the priests would also reenact mythological scenes. The bark also acted as an oracle. Whilst moving, it could be asked questions. Depending on how it bowed could mean yes or no. There's also research that suggests that the Ark of Covenant was inspired by these sacred barks. After Egypt came under the control of Rome with the death of Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt, in 30 CE, work within Karnak would stop. Constantius II ordered pagan temples to be closed in 336 CE, and Amun's worship came to an end, and a lot of his priests were slaughtered. Christians briefly tried to use the site, but the city of Thebes was abandoned and with it Karnak. Most of Karnak's complex remains unexcavated and undocumented, with much more work still to be done. Today's episode didn't give much in terms of the magical, we simply don't know a lot of what happened behind those walls. But there's a part of me that hopes an ancient priest foresaw what was coming, foresaw the march of Christianity, and Constantius II's orders for the closure of pagan temples that this priest foresaw this, and wrote down in detail the magical rituals that happened at Karnak, and buried them for safekeeping, in the hopes that one day, when his gods were allowed to be worshipped again, these scrolls could be used to honour them, that to this day, they are still waiting to be on Earth. While researching this and reading about the grandness of the temple, there was a certain sadness around it for me. It's largely destroyed, And it made me think that there's no structure like it today, that I'm aware of, that's in use, and that has survived, and that is used to honour the pagan gods. Could you imagine walking around the Hippostyle Hall in hushed darkness, feeling the presence of the Divine? So much culture, belief, and beauty just gone. And this is painfully contrasted with the legacy that we're currently creating, that of plastic Coke bottles and a failing ecosystem. We've fucked big time. But that being said, I do still have faith. I have hope. Since creating this podcast, I've connected with some amazing people that are making a difference and that are shining their light. If you're not seeing the change you wish to see, become it. In whatever capacity, even if it's the smallest step, take it, make it happen. If you're not seeing anyone speak up, you speak up. We are all active players in this world and we can all make a difference. We just have to be brave enough to do so. And majors, that's it. That's a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. My intent with this podcast is to provide guidance and inspiration for those on their spiritual path and to talk about interesting parts of history relating to spirituality. I also want to connect you with information that is both useful and reliable. Would you like to support me and encourage me in creating more episodes? With your support I can give the podcast more time and create more quality content. You can support me through Patreon and gain access to exclusive content and be part of the Majors Well community, as well as being in the communal sugar pot spell. The link is in the episode description. You could also support me by following my Instagram at Well, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and telling your friends about the show. Please get in touch with anything you wish to share at themajorswell at gmail.com, and you may just get featured. A big thank you to Coral St. Clair for the podcast artwork. I've added a reading list to my Patreon due to a suggestion from MazeCat79. I love the idea, and I'm going to do it each week now going forward. If there's something you'd like me to do to improve the show for you so you get more out of it, I'm all ears. Please let me know. I said it earlier, but here's the details again. My email, themageswell at gmail.com, and it's the same for Instagram, at themageswell. Get in touch, let me know. Peace out, witches.